Um, so I grew up, or I was born in Ventura, California. For those of you who don't know, that's just north of LA, close to the beach. And honestly, I don't really remember much about uh, some of the first places we lived because I was like, I don't know, a toddler. So I'm like zero to three years old. And so I remember some things about growing up, but other things I have like no idea. So as an adult, my mom, she's, she always tells us stories. She's like, hey, you did this when you're a kid. Oh, hey, this happened when you're a kid. And one of my favorite stories is this time when she's like, hey, our first apartment when you were a toddler, um, your window in your crib was set up at your window. So you would stand up in your crib and you would look out and you would watch movies at the drive-in theater. So real quick, if some of you chuckled, you're like, oh yeah, drive-ins. Others who don't understand this concept is there was these massive screens that they would set up in parking lots. You would drive your car to face that screen. You would tune your radio and you only had like a cassette player, FM, AM choices. So you tune it and you hear the movie playing over this station and you sit and you watch this movie from the comfort of your car. It's really not that comfortable, if you, <laughs> but you can make it cool. You could sit in the back, whatever. Um, so this was like the common thing, right? So my mom's telling me a story. She's like, yeah, you would stand up in your crib and you would just watch movies all the time. And I'm like, cool. First thing I thought, it was like, wow, that's probably why I'm a little bit messed up. Like my early childhood development years, I'm like watching movies, all this stuff. Like that can't be good for me. But then my second thought is, and this is the best part is what my mom says. She's like, you know what? When you were watching those movies, you really watched a lot of movies you shouldn't have watched. And I'm, it kills me every time when she tells me that because I'm like, mom, are you kidding me? I'm like two years old. How would I have any idea what I should watch and what I shouldn't watch? I'm just like drawn to these screens in these movies. Like I'm not choosing that as like because this is a great movie. I'm like, mom, you're the parent. You should have moved the crib away from the window or closed the blinds. Like help parent me, okay? Um, so welcome to my childhood. Um, so anyways, when we're talking about movies and what is a good or bad movie for us to watch, thankfully, we have these marketing geniuses over the past decades that have developed these things called previews. Most of us know what a preview is. The editors, people, they come together, they take all these clips of the, the, the movie and they add to music and they give us like a 30 second clip and showing us that movie. And what happens in that 30 seconds is you are, you, it elicits a response from us. So we either say, that's a must see movie for me. I can't wait till it comes out. I'm gonna be there waiting the night before in line, maybe, if you're into the Harry Potter stuff back in the day, you camp out the night before, but you have to see that, so you're going you're gonna to be there. Or the next maybe response is, yeah, it looks good, but I think I'll just wait till it's streaming. I'd rather just watch it from home. Or, or the third response that can happen to is like, this looks like trash. This movie's garbage. I will not waste any time or money on it. I don't care. Someone can just spoil it for me later. So this 30-second preview gives us and leads us to a response, right? And so this is what takes us into Revelation today. John has written this book and first of all, if you're new or first time visiting us or you haven't been here in a while, we're working through the book of Revelation. It's been quite fun, quite challenging, but, but John uses and authors um, this pretty intense, dramatic 
imagery and symbolism to reveal to readers what is the true reality of God. So even though some of these, the writings in the book isn't necessarily real or actually going to happen, it's showing us something of reality, of God's reality. So what John is doing in this, um, through this writing, through this language, is he's giving us a preview And so in the same way that a movie preview elicits a response, as we look to the book of Revelation, it should have listed us a response in us as Christians as well. And so what we're going to kind of look into today is as Christians choose to follow the Lamb, they're living as a preview people. So other people, as they see Christians living and following the Lamb, they see a preview for the way Christians or how we live our life and they're drawn to God through us. And we're gonna see that, but we're gonna see that. And, and I wanna say this first and up front because today when we get into chapters in 15 and 16, where we're gonna see the climax of God's wrath poured out as you read or on the screen, the scripture reader talked about these seven angels come out, the bowls of wrath are poured out. It's a really intense two chapters, strong imagery, strong language, very um, intense to kind of get into, but it, is, it has a purpose behind it. So knowing that it's shaping Christians to be preview people is so important to say. Um, and before we unpack this and get in, I just want to take another moment to pause and pray because it is really intense and having to teach and talk through this stuff, there's a lot going on. So like my nerves are like, you know, maxed out. I'm like, oh my gosh, like what if I say something wrong or what if I need to add something? So um, if you just pray with me again, we're going to pray and then we're going to dive into the sermon. Lord, we just thank you for your word, Lord God. We thank you that you have called us to know you, Lord, and to choose to follow the Lamb. Lord, we pray and we invite your Holy Spirit into this room, into our minds, into our hearts, Lord, into my words, my preparation, Lord God, and let your uh, truth be known and heard, Lord God, through our service this morning. God, we're just so thankful that we have your word and that we can rely on community and uh, scholars and men and women who've given their lives to understand some of these image, images and symbolisms, that we can relate to them, understand them, and we can live as faithful witnesses to you, Lord God. We thank you for this time, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we're entering this time this morning, there's an important biblical tool we use to interpret, interpret, and it's asking this question, basically. It's, what is the author trying to say to us through this text, and what then does this text want to do? to us as the readers. So John, when he authors Revelation, he has in, in uses this intense, this dramatic, this symbolism, these graphic images to reveal to Christians who is in control of all history, who is actually governing the things of the world. So as the, as the church is feeling persecuted in the first century and Rome seems all powerful, John is right to say, hey, no, let me actually pull back the curtain and let me reveal to you who's in charge of all things and who's in control. Thus, shaping people to be faithful disciples to follow Jesus. Secondly, as Christians, we see the true reality of God's power and his reign. We choose that and we live faithfully to him. Once again, this is shaping us to be preview people. So, 
Now that we understand one of these things of what Revelation is trying to do, there's, there's three things we're going to look at. There's two from Revelation, and then kind of the third one is a bit of an application or what this means for us. The first thing we're going to talk about is the climax of God's wrath. In this section, it talks about these seven bowls being poured out. It says it's finished, it's done. So we're going to get into that and look at that. And then the second thing from this passage we're going to see is how judgment is, an act, is actually an act of mercy on, from God. And so this, I want to say that again, judgment is an act of mercy. So how, and then like I said, the last thing we'll kind of talk about is how can we be preview people? So as we get into this, I want to build off. And if you haven't listened to all this series, we don't want to try to just be like, oh, listen to us, listen to us, because we're so great. But we put in a lot of work trying to study and understand Revelation, and we have all the recordings. So if you've missed them, Anthony did a great job. He's talked about already in Revelation, there's these three sets of seven. These seven bowls we're going to get to is the third set. The first set is these seals. There's seven seals seals. Uh, and then after the seven seals, there's seven trumpets. Try saying that seven times fast. It's a lot of language and words. So as the first set of seals ends on the seventh, the second set of trumpets opens up into seven. In this time, though, it's, it doesn't go one through seven, one through seven. There's these things that John, the author, puts in called interludes. There are these moments of what I'll call reprieve for readers, because as you're reading, you're like, wow, this is really intense stuff. Like, I'm kind of scared. I'm freaking out. God's about to, like, what is he doing here? Then John changes the tone, and he changes our focus to see different characteristics of God and who he is from different angles in his character of love and grace and mercy. And so we have these three sets of seven judgments happening, but in the middle, there's these pauses or interludes. So it kind of breaks it up and it makes a huge chunk of the book of Revelation. And now we come to the third set of seven, which are these bowls. And, and what to know about these judgments as well is all these uh, and what we kind of believe and have talked about already is these all encompass one time period from the time where Jesus resurrects from the dead till the time where he comes in his second coming. All these are one, that's the time period we're in now. The, the judgments, they, they are all encompassing this section. Uh, some people try to predict like, oh, when we see these signs, this signs, this is that time, or they think these judgments are progressively elaborating to get worse and worse and worse and they're separate time periods through history. Um, what we believe in, what we're looking at is, no, we just think this is one time period. Each set of judgment is used to describe this time period a little bit uniquely, a, a little bit distinctly. Distinctly. And as we're going to see now, the seven bowls are kind of the finale of God's redemptive plan. And then lastly, what I'll say in regards to the judgments, and this I think is super important, is they actually are acts, as we talk about and get into more, are as they're the mercy of God, because judgments are the tool God is going to use to eradicate the world of evil, of sin, brokenness. And the purpose is, as us as people and humanity sees brokenness, we see famine, we see poverty, we see injustice, we should turn and be like longing for the love of God, for the justice, for the judgment of God to set us free. So his judgments are this tool that he uses to 
reveal himself in a loving way to the world so people can turn to him and follow his ways. So most people usually probably would stigmatize judgment or you're like, oh, don't judge me. Like, how dare you judge me? And they see this judgment as this scary, and some of it is quite scary, standing for the Lord. But if you're following him and you're seeing these judgments, this is a necessary um, act of God to eradicate evil. So we receive these as, as a good thing. Um, so as we dig in, let me come to the first section we're going to read to, and it's a bit longer, and it's going to be Revelation 15, 1 through 4, and then I'm going to skip down to 16, 1 through 12. And I want to read through all this as a bigger section because we'll kind of jump back. We're going to start, we'll talk about the climax of God's wrath and what that means and how to understand it through the bowls, but then we'll move into the mercy of God, but then we'll see as this passage unfolds how the, the finality of this climax of wrath is seen. So I'm going to read all these sections because it encompasses all this, and then we're going to break this down a bit. So here we go. If you have your Bibles, basically go to the very end, Revelation 15, 1 through 4. John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Going to 16, 1 through 12. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go. Pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful source came upon the people who bore the marking of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven. For their pain and sores, they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. You see why I prayed again for this? Uh, we have the bowls of judgment, we have kings, we have angels, we have this sea of glass. We have all these components brought here together, these vivid images, John is using them. 
to communicate something. Did you notice, or when you reread this, if you spend some time here, any, similars in these, any, any similarities in these passages? So you see the sea of glass, the song of Moses, then we see the first five plagues. There's the, the sores on the skin, the oceans, the rivers, the darkness, and then we see the sun. All of these components or similarities are taken from the Exodus account. So this is the first thing that's really important for us to look at is John, he takes the outline of the Exodus, which was God's paradigm shifting act in the world into Israel of freeing a people of his own work and freeing them to be a nation to worship him, to know him. And that was one of the redemptive works God has done. So now, as John is verbalizing and writing what is the final redemptive act of God, it's no wonder he ties back to the most significant moment of the Hebrew nation or Israelites' history, the Exodus, because he's saying, hey, this was such a climactic event for us, but this event to come is the most climactic. So we see this song, so as soon as the people are freed from the beast and evil, what do they do? They stop. They worship God. The same with the people in the Exodus. Once they crossed the Red Sea, they paused and they just sang and they worship God. So we notice some of the language in here that's used when we're speaking of God. What do we see? We see verbs that talk about his deeds, his ways, his righteous acts. So people, we look to and we see the works of God. And then we see from these songs, how do people respond or how should people respond? We praise God, we proclaim him, we sing, we worship. These are how we as people glorify God. And when we recognize his mighty acts, this is the only response we can have is we give back and we worship him. And, and here, as we see in these plagues unfolding, we feel this tension start building up this climax it talks about of wrath, where the final wrath is being poured out, or it is finished, it is done, as we will hear and see. But what we notice is where this tension rises from is as we see how the people of God should respond, and as each bowl start pouring out, you hear, listen to what is happening, how do the people respond that are, are following the beast or committed to the ways of the beast? They curse the name of God. They do not repent. They don't turn from their ways or the ways of the beast. They don't turn to God, so they forego repentance. They don't glorify God. And then again, as we read on, it says, it gets a little even more intense. It says, the people nod their tongues in anguish and curse God. They did not repeat, repent of their deeds. So I think commonly, it's, it's kind of hard for us to understand judgment and we're always looking and being like, well, that's pretty intense. I'm like, I love grace. I like the love of God. But when it comes to judgment, we're like, maybe that's a thing I'll put like to the side. Like, I think it's necessary. It's in the Bible. But honestly, I don't know how to approach that. I don't want to be like one of those really intense Christians. That's like just the world is going to burn. And you're part of that, which we've already looked at understanding revelation theology in poor ways kind of forms that belief. Um, but here we are at the we, we need to understand this climax in the theology of judgment 
Because, like I said earlier, and this is quite a bold claim to say that judgment is an act of mercy. As we see, as we relate also these third sets of seven, you see in the first set when the seals are being opened, there's like a third of the ocean, a third of the rivers, just partial of the world is affected. But now when we come to this passage, we're seeing this wrath and this judgment is being poured out and covers the entire earth and is happening to everyone, all things. So how is this an act of mercy is what I want to get into. And to be honest, when I was prepping and preparing for this, it's, it's interesting if you ever get to speak or teach on the Bible, I feel we come with like our own ideas and we're like, oh, I can't wait to learn this because this is what it's going to communicate. I'm like, all right, Anthony, I get assigned to this passage. I'm like, sweet. Like, uh, I don't even know where to begin with this stuff. I'm like, but seeing and knowing that like, oh, the seven bowls of judgment. I'm like, I can't wait to figure out the, the, how big these bowls are and how important they are and their significance. And so I'm studying, I'm reading, and you know what? You know what I did not find out? I literally found nothing profound about the bowls. <laughs> Except for this one thing. A bowl, as you see here, this, this is it's a set object, right? It holds a very set volume. That's the most profound thing I figured out. <laughs> so thanks for your generosity and supporting ours as staff because you paid for that profound <laughs> nugget. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But what I did find out that actually is very profound, and this is why what I was like, I mean, really taken back and being understanding like, wow, this passage, as scary and tense as it is, I'm like, wow, God, you are merciful you, how can we be, receive your mercy and live as you are merciful, Lord God? And this is how I see that. Um, you have a God and we have a God who's perfect. He's righteous. He is like the perfect example of all things holy. Whatever that really means, when you think about that, it's good language, but it's like a huge platitude. So you're like, what does holiness mean? Then I can say, it's God. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? And I'm like, go to someone smarter, go to a theologian. Let's talk about this because it's really true. Like his perfection is who he is, right? And so I want to kind of bring us back to this Old Testament story that's really obscure and it's really weird, but it, it kind of depicts how God's perfection is. And when God's perfection interacts with any bit of evil, deceit, or dishonesty, whatever you want to call it, it can't, they can't coexist. So God's perfection overrules and eliminates any imperfection. So there's a story in the Old Testament. There's a lot of battles between uh, Israel, Judah, the people who are supposed to be the people of God and the surrounding world. And there's these elements, it's called the Ark of the Covenant. Moses in this Exodus story, they, they built this elaborate box and they put these things in it that represented God. And there's these huge like angel wings and this thing on top of this box called the mercy seat where God's presence literally sat and was present. So the people in Moses, they would go and they would worship and they would seek God for wisdom, advice for whatever. And then they would go and they would try to enact that out. So God's presence had rested on this object that was created by humans and it had become purified. It was holy. It was symbolic of aspects of God. But 
in these wars and as Israel had fallen and kind of not done a good job to be previewing the witness of God, this, these elements are taken and they're taken after this battle. And so this surrounding land has the Ark of the Covenant. All these bad things start happening to these people and they're like, we gotta get rid of this. This is too intense. Whatever God is attached to this thing, this, he's destroying our people. We need to free ourselves from this. And so let's bring this back to the people it came from because we don't want it to hear anymore. So there's this crazy stuff that happens with this Ark because of God's presence. So Israelites are like, years later, they're like, hey, I think we should bring this stuff back to us because it belongs to us and God's presence and it's part of our worship. It's holy to us. And let's bring it back. So what do they do? Uh, they're pretty smart. They're like, we'll put it on this cart. We'll wheel it back to, and they'll put it in the temple. And then it can be rested back how it's intended in God's presence. And we can worship him again. First of all, this Ark of the Covenant I'm talking about and this Bible nerdiness had these very specific set length poles that would carry it so no humans could touch it or get close to it. Very specific rules were around this thing because the perfectness of God had touched it and purified it. So when they put it on the cart, they're already kind of breaking the rules on how this material is supposed to be transported. So these are ancient roads. They're um, probably similar to the I-17 when you're driving down before construction, like huge potholes. You like mess up your tires and rims. So this cart hits that pothole. It starts, the Ark of the Covenant starts falling off and these guys reach up to try to get it and they are destroyed. It literally kills them. And you read this and you're like, what? Like this story I told you is obscure. It's weird. But here's the thing is one, the perfectness of God exists because that is who he is. And he has interacted, purified this thing. And so when anyone who has sin or evilness connected and tied into like all humans do, they touch this object and immediately the purity of God purifies and eradicates that evil. And unfortunately, these two guys, they felt that out. And so why do I tell this story? is because if God is who he is and he has to and he will eradicate any evil, then imagine him like this, this pitcher of water. Like think about this is the wrath of God of all time. It's stored up in here. Instead, like what he could do is he's like, hey, that's evil. And he pours them out. He's like, oh, that's evil. Pour some out. He just starts pouring out the wrath of God on the world. And any bit of evil, he just eradicates it. You know where we would be? We would not have made it to where we are today. Instead, and this is the profoundness of the bowls and where his mercy is shown is we have a bowl and instead of pouring his wrath out every time, what does he do? He pours it into this bowl and it collects and it fills. And at an unbeknownst time, it keeps going. And instead of him, pouring out his wrath and continuing to just eradicate evil over and over and over in every single instant. He uses these bowls, metaphoric bowls. He's like, I'm going to withhold my wrath from my people because I want them to see my acts. I want them to have the choice to know me, to choose me, to walk with me. And this is an act of mercy. So we see this, and then again, as we look into this passage of Revelation 16, and we see 
the first five plagues are poured out, what happens? You notice how, yes, the first one is like, hey, the people's skin and their like skin disease or these boils with sores are coming up are put on them, but it doesn't eradicate them. It gives them an opportunity to turn to God. Then he turns to the rest of creation. There's four, four plagues on creation, which we talked about numbers. That just re- represents all completeness. So he pours out his wrath on creation first to get people to be like, hey, I'm here. Look to me first. So he is so patient through all this stuff and through all these sets of judgments. He's giving all the humans, anyone who's being lured to the beast, an opportunity to know him. So, so even though this language is intense, we need to read and see this as like, he's giving us this time and space to show his mercy for us to know him. So let me read this quote. This is from N.T. Wright. And he says it probably what I'm trying to communicate much more precisely, clearly, better articulated. So I'm like, I could say some more, but I'll just read you this quote. This is from M.T. Wright. This is what he says. Because of the nature of his, God's, love, he will not always be stepping in and calling time before the appointed moment. If he did, too many who might yet repent and be rescued, they would be caught in the middle. But instead, what he does, what God does He will let evil take its course and bring its own nemesis. And then at a moment which only he is in any position to judge, he will bring the necessary closure on the world's wrongs. This he must do if he is indeed the father of Jesus, the Messiah. This is what it means that the angels pour out the bowls of his wrath upon the earth, the sea, the rivers, and the sun. It's from N.T. Wright. Let me just read that one more time. He says, um, he will bring the necessary closure on the world's wrongs. So as we get into these chapters of Revelation 15, 16, we see this climactic time. This is representing and showing a time when God himself chooses to close or end all evil, eradicate all sin, and make his kingdom known and brought in perfection and holiness. And the language to uh, depict that and show us, it's just, it's very intention. He uses, he uses judgment and wrath as symbolic language to communicate this closure or this finality in the time when he so chooses. Um, So as we see here in the pouring out of these seven bowls, we see and we expect that there will be time when the reality of God's judgments comes as an act of mercy. But as we kind of move towards the the next part of this, um, these verses, we're going to talk about what, how, what preview people looks like. But before that, what I want to get into is touch on one of probably the, the biggest words in Revelation. I think we've had a couple so far, but this word Armageddon, real quick, show of hands, have you heard about Armageddon? Keep them up. Have you heard about Armageddon as a doomsday event? Yes, right? Mostly, I would say, we hear about Armageddon as doomsday. Let me read. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 16, 16 through 21. So we're going to look and we're going to uh, address this because that's 
probably one of the biggest from the book of Revelations misunderstood terms or ideologies or theologies that's come from Revelation is the Armageddon. So let me read here. So we're going to read Revelation 16, 16 through 21. It says this, And they assembled them at the place in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath, and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe." So we see the, the fifth plague is poured out specifically on the river Euphrates. And then what happens in the sixth plague is these, uh, we see these nations or the kings, it says, from the east come to gather. These like demonic spirits leave these frogs or come out as frogs. They kind of ensnare the world leaders. And there's this huge thing. It's, it's like Armageddon's about to happen, this doomsday event. And what we have come from that and from our popular culture in Hollywood is, is we're like, this is the, the end times event of the entire world. And we see that in so many storylines. What's the, three of my favorites? Skynet comes online, the AI robots, they use humanity's nuclear arsenal against humanity, they, they start ruling the world, and that's the doomsday event is when Skynet comes on. Um, that's the Terminator storyline, guys, if you didn't know that. <laughs> uh, then we have another great one. We have and one of my favorites, a little overplayed now, but the zombie apocalypse, right? Some crazy virus breaks out, whether it's man-made or it's just nature revolting, whatever. It makes this epidemic global proportions. And so like the world comes to ruin because of this virus. So we see this doomsday type Armageddon event or my favorite, and this is literally the movie Armageddon, if you all have seen that, is the meteorite is coming and they, someone random person, probably in Flagstaff, loves his own microscope or whatever, telescope, sorry, wrong device, notices this comet coming. He's like, this is going to hit the earth. Not the rest of the earth geniuses who would see that, but this one random guy sees it. And then the earth is like, oh, we can only save the planet if we blast this with a nuclear missile or something like that. So the whole plot is like Armageddon doomsday is coming from this comet. So we see this, it's so common to us. But however, I hate to spoil this, this Armageddon that we have in Revelation is simply a name. It literally, Armageddon is the Hebrew name for Mount Megiddo. It's really anticlimactic, I'm sorry. There's no, we're not like, oh yeah, get ready, we're gonna go to battle, guys, it's gonna be amazing. It's like, no, this place, Mount Megiddo, and to be fair, many battles had been fought there. This is why John chooses it. This is a mountain pass in the, in the ancient Near East that connects uh, the east to Jezreel, the, what's called the Jezreel Valley. So they would have a fortified station on top at Mount Megiddo, and this was a huge trade route. And so 
they would fight to make sure this was controlled because whoever controlled this controlled the trade and this Jezreel Valley was very fertile farmland. So it's like whoever controls this has like an abundance. They, they get the wealth from the trade. They get this farmland. So it was a str strategy or strategic place to control this place. So battles were far, fought there. So that's why when they say Armageddon, it just means Mount Megiddo, this place. And so you see as the sixth plague is poured out, the kings of the east are gathering at this place, and you're like, oh yeah, battle, let's go. I can't wait for this battle to go. And what happens? The seventh plague is poured out, and what happens in that if we read it? God, we hear a loud voice. The voice of God says, it is done. Earthquake, there's the thunder, lightning. With those three words, it is done, as we see the power of God in creation, when he spoke the creation, the world, humanity into existence, he also eradicates evil through just simply the voice of his word. And we see this, as we saw in earlier Revelation, Jesus is described as like, there's a sword coming out of his mouth. So people are like, oh, that's the sword that's gonna strike everyone down. It's like, no, that's just the power of the word of the Lord. And we see here in the seventh and final plague, Oh, his word, literally, when he speaks, and it's that time, he'll speak the world and all evil will be eradicated and be destroyed. Simple as that. Not as exciting as this crazy battle, but equally as, as glorious. Um, and so we come as, as we look in and as we continue in the series, we're gonna see what happens as we see when his word spoke and Babylon fell and the people who chose the way of the beast over the way of the Lord, they are all fallen and they're starting to disperse and the reality is coming to be, the evil is being um, eradicated. We see this will be playing out and Anthony will he'll take us through the rest of that story to come. But for us today, what I wanna kind of step into and look at is, what does this mean for us? We're like, okay, yeah, we understand. Judgment is an act of mercy from God, right? We see these two chapters, they depict this climax of God's wrath and his redemptive plan about to take place. But what does this mean for us? So if we're looking at these three sets of seven judgments that we've looked through in the series of Revelation, and we're understanding we're living in this time period, we right now in this room exist in the time between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming, then what we've also learned from Anthony's sermon, uh, I think it's the second set of seven judgments with the, the trumpets, is people repent not because of those judgments themselves, but when the people of the world see Christians or what Revelation says, those who follow the lamb. So those who follow Jesus, people see them and they're like, I want to know that God. I want to be like that that person. I want to know who they know. Who is this God? Let us be like them. And this is what it means to be a preview person. In Redemption Flagstaff, this is um, a question that it, it haunt me, and this may sound weird, but I literally pray as I'm prepping, I'm like, I hope this question just lives in the back of your mind for the rest of your life, and it haunts you, and there's days you're like, Kyle, why did you ever have to say that? This is so frustrating. But this question is, when people see you, and they see the way you live their life, are they drawn to Jesus? Or 
when people see you and they see the way you live your life, are they repelled from Jesus? And the, well, it was like, I think Thursday night or whatever. Thursday night's my Friday, right? I have Fridays off. I was texting Anthony. I think Jacqueline was in the Valley for work. I was like, I, I didn't grow up Christian. So this whole left behind theology revelation stuff, like I don't have like a, a frame of reference for that which maybe is good. I just remember becoming a Christian. I'm reading Revelation. I'm like, I will never read this book again, basically. <laughs> I'll just steer away from it. So I'm like looking on Netflix. I'm like, what? I need to watch something. And I'm like, oh, Left Behind with Nicolas Cage. Maybe I should see <laughs> what the hype is all about and understand this. So I text Anthony. I was like, hey, I'm going to watch this just so you know. <laughs> and he's like, welcome to my childhood. And I'm, like, I'm, I'm like, this is the worst movie ever. Um, and why I say that is because like, Honestly, it kind of makes me sad. It's like the way they, the two Christians in the movie, well, there's three, there's a pastor later who actually didn't get raptured. So he wasn't a true Christian, I guess, and he confesses. But the two Christians that are true Christians, everyone is like, the only thing these Christians talk about is being prepared for this judgment and rapture where they're escaped from the world. And God is gonna like bring this seven year, like um, turmoil and torture to the world. And everyone's like, these people are wax. They're crazy. We'll never do this. And then towards the end of the movies, they're like, oh, they knew it was right. They chose right. And I'm like, what? Like, and first of all, they're like, oh, all these clothes are like falling, like the rapture happens and like clothes are like falling from the sky. And you're like, there's just piles of clothes everywhere. And like cars are just crashing. It's really ridiculous. But then like one of the characters at the end, he's like, my wife knew that would happen and the clothes would be left behind. And I was like, she's, he, and he says, oh, it's in the Bible. And I was like, I've read the Bible over a few times. Never have I heard about these clothes falling from the sky. So I'm in, it's pretty crazy. I'm like, this is sad to me, mostly because, and this is where it's important that, and why I think we choose to get into Revelation as a series to shape our faith, not for this predictive end times rapture type theology, but to understand God's redemptive plan is beautiful and restorative and eradicates evil and his judgments are good. But then also I'm like, how many people have watched this and been like, I would never be Christian because these people are foolish. There's no love. There's no mercy. It's just the way they portray themselves is so unattractive. I was like, I pray and hope that I'll never be like these people in this movie. And I know now as Christians and as we as a church, we got a lot of work to do to restore people's uh, safety and understanding of really who Jesus is. So I'm like, church, as we think about being a preview people, like there, that comes one with a mighty calling to us, but also with a lot of baggage for people because they've been hurt by the church, burned by the church. You see these like bad theologies that have really deeply hurt and traumatized people. We see this huge cultural movement of deconstruction. So it's like, how can we live into the reality of God, his love, his mercy, his righteous acts, and let that shape us and form us so that way when people see us and know us, they're like, Jesus is good. 
I want to know more about him. Or how can we have the courage, the boldness to just initiate with people and understand, like, where do they stand? How do they think about Jesus? How do they believe in him? Is there trauma there? Can we recognize that and be like, hey, that is actually real trauma you've experienced. I'm sorry you were hurt by the church or by that Christian, but I'm really sorry. If you ever want to talk more, I can be there. So I think as, as that question you think about that, and as we enter a time of reflection, just think about the way, how do we live our life? Are we living as a preview for Jesus, the king of this world and his kingdom that draws people to him and himself and reveals God's mighty works and acts of love and mercy? Or is it repelling people away from Jesus? So church, um, let me pray and then we're gonna enter our time of reflection. Lord, we just thank you that you have poured your spirit out, Lord God, into the world uh, and you are enough for us, Lord. We thank you that you are merciful, you are mighty, you are loving, Lord God. And I just pray that you help us, each one of us in this room, to know that you are our Father in heaven who loves us, Lord God, and that you've chosen us, Lord, that you wanna teach us, that you wanna show us your ways. Lord, and I thank you that you've given us a calling and a mission to make you known in the world around us, Lord God. So I pray that you would put specific people on our hearts and minds that we would witness to and be preview people to. Lord, give us the words of courage and boldness to talk about your love and your truth and your reality, Lord, to those around us. And thank you for your word, for your spirit, and for your son, Jesus. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.